I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we compile all that the Bible has to say on a subject to arrive at a holistic outlook on life. The book of Deuteronomy, it takes the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. There's no secret as we spent an entire lesson two weeks ago covering this fact. The entire book is an ancient legal document. It's a treaty between a high king and the kings who serve under him. It's a treaty or perhaps a covenant that is cut between God and his people. And this treaty with Hashem as the suzerain king provides a framework for what God is accomplishing on this planet with this people. Because Hashem is not simply forming a family with himself at the head. We're not simply a household with Hashem as the lead spouse and each of us as his intimate partner. We're not simply a family with each of us as his children and him as the father. Heck, we're not simply a people who worship a god, a a religion, or a church. Deuteronomy challenges us with the new paradigm that is one that is repeated over and over throughout the Gospels. The role of God as king and with us as his subjects. In fact, it is this paradigm that is the core of the Gospel that Yeshua taught. We are a kingdom. We are a people aligned behind a king. We owe allegiance and obedience to our king as his vassals. And so when Yeshua came, the Messiah, the king from the line of David, what did he come preaching? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And at his death, what was the charge that was leveled against Yeshua as he hung on the cross? The charge that was written on the plaque that was hung over his head? the king of the Jews. But that charge missed the mark. He was not simply king of a small ethnic cross-section of humanity. He is the king of all who would accept him as king, the king of the kingdom of God. And upon his death and resurrection, Yeshua ascended to heaven on the clouds and seated himself at the right hand of Hashem, according to the prophecy of Daniel 7. And this paradigm of the kingdom of God finds its foundation here. Deuteronomy is the legal document that begins to outline this kingdom in its seed form as it begins to grow here on earth, the first iteration of a physical kingdom, a lesson, a type, and a shadow that teaches us of the spiritual kingdom that is our present reality. And in Deuteronomy 1, we read of the primary threat to the kingdom of God, ourselves, our own treacherous and rebellious and sinful hearts that will turn us against our king especially if we choose to build our own kingdom instead of his. Making the choice to build your own kingdom will leave you with split loyalties. You'll build your kingdom first. His kingdom will come second. And a kingdom divided against itself cannot and will not stand. 
a man with divided loyalties cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we read of the secondary threat to the kingdom of God, the giants of the world, those on the outside of the kingdom that actively seek the destruction of the kingdom and all that it entails, those who wish to overthrow the kingdom of God and bring it down. These are the enemies of the kingdom of God, enemies both foreign and domestic, the human heart and the spiritual adversity. And while every kingdom has its enemies, there are four things that are required for a kingdom to exist. And this Parsha covers all four. So let's open up and let's read Deuteronomy 3 from verse 24 through the end of chapter 4. Deuteronomy 3:23 through the end of chapter 4. And I pleaded with Hashem at that time, saying, O Master Hashem, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand, for who is a mighty one in the heavens or on earth who does according to your works and according to your might? I pray, let me pass over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, this good hill country in Lebanon. But Hashem was enraged with me for your sake, and would not listen to me. And Hashem said to me, Enough of that, speak no more to me about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look with your eyes, for you do not pass over this Jordan. But command Yehoshua and strengthen him and make him brave, for he shall pass over before his people and cause them to inherit the land which you see. And we dwelt in the valley opposite Beth Peor. And now, O Israel, listen to the laws and the right rulings which I am teaching you to do so that you live, and you shall go and possess the land which Hashem, Elohim of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to the word which I command you, and do not take away from it, so as to guard the commands of Hashem your Elohim which I am commanding you. Your eyes have seen what Hashem did at Baal Peor, for Hashem your Elohim has destroyed from your midst all the men who followed Baal Peor. But you who are clinging to Hashem, your Elohim, are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you laws and right rulings, as Hashem, my Elohim, commanded me, to do thus in the land which you go to possess. And you shall guard and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding before the eyes of the peoples who hear all these laws, and they shall say, Only a wise and understanding people is this great nation. For what great nation is there which has Elohim so near to it as Hashem our Elohim is to us, whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has such laws and righteous right rulings like all this Torah which I set before you this day? Only guard yourself and guard your life diligently, lest you forget the words your eyes have seen, and lest they turn aside from your heart all the days of your life, and you shall make them known to your children and your grandchildren. The day when you stood before Hashem, your Elohim, in Chorev, Hashem said to me, Assemble the people to me, and I make them hear my words, so that they learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and teach them to their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And Hashem spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard a voice of words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. And he made known to you his covenant, which he commanded you to do, the ten words, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Hashem commanded me at that time to teach you the laws and the right rulings for you to do them in the land which you pass over to possess. 
Therefore diligently guard yourselves, for you saw no form when Hashem spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you should do corruptly and shall make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the heavens, the likeness of any creature that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And lest you lift up your eyes to the heavens and shall see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of the heavens, and you be drawn away into bowing down to them and serving them which Hashem your Elohim has allotted to all the peoples under the heavens. But Hashem has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Mitzrayim to be his people, an inheritance as it is today. And Hashem was enraged with me because of your words, and swore that I would not pass over the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land which Hashem, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. For I am to die in this land. I am not passing over the Jordan, but you are passing over, and shall possess that good land. Guard yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of Hashem, your Elohim, which he made with you, and shall make for yourselves a carved image in any form, as Hashem, your Elohim, has commanded you. For Hashem, your Elohim, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. But you bring forth children and grandchildren, and shall grow old in the land, and shall do corruptly, and make a carved image in the form of whatever. And you shall do what is evil in the eyes of Hashem, your Elohim, to provoke him. I shall call the heavens and the earth to witness against you on that day, that you soon completely perish from the land which you pass over the yard and to possess. You do not prolong your days in it, but are completely destroyed. And Hashem shall scatter you among the peoples, and you shall be left few in number among the nations where Hashem drives you. And there you shall serve mighty ones, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you shall seek Hashem your Elohim, and shall find when you search for him with all your heart and with all your being, in your distress, when all these words shall come upon you in the latter days, then you shall return to Hashem your Elohim and shall obey his voice. For Hashem your Elohim is a compassionate El. He does not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that Elohim created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heavens to the other end of the heavens whether there has been a word as great as this, or has been heard like it. Has a people heard the voice of Elohim speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or has God tried to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of a nation by trials and by signs and by wonders and by battle and by strong hand and an outstretched arm and great fearsome deeds according to all that Hashem your Elohim did for you in Mitzrayim before your eyes? You have been shown it to know that Hashem himself is Elohim and there is no one besides him. From the heaven he lets you hear his voice to instruct you, and on earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, and brought you out of Mitzrayim with his presence and with his great power, to drive out from before you nations greater and stronger than you, to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance as it is today. And ye shall know today and shall recall in your heart that Hashem himself is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath there is none else. And ye shall guard his laws and his commands which I command you today, so that it is well with you and with your children after you, and so that you prolong your days on the soil which Hashem your God is giving you for all time. Then Moshe separated three cities beyond the yard and toward the rising of the sun. For a manslayer to flee there, he who unknowingly murdered his neighbor without having hated him in times past, and might flee to one of these cities and live. Betzer in the wilderness and the level land for the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilad for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Menashites. 
And this is the Torah which Moshe set before the children of Israel. These are the witnesses and the laws and the judgments which Moshe spoke to the children of Israel after they had come out of Mitzrayim. Beyond the Yarden in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sichon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moshe and the children of Israel had stricken after they came out of Mitzrayim. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Yard and toward the rising of the sun, from Aroer, which is on the bank of the Wadi Arnon, even to Mount Sion, which is in Harman, and all the desert plain beyond the Arden, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, below the slopes of Pisgah. As we encounter the book of Deuteronomy from the perspective of a suzerain vassal treaty, we discover that this week's text closes off the prologue of the document. The opening that describes the relationship that has occurred up to this point between the one who would become high king and those who would be vassals upon the ratification of the treaty. As is common in the ancient Near East, the great qualities of the high king are highlighted throughout this prologue. The things that the king has done for his vassals, the need that the people have for this treaty and for the suzerain to govern them, their own failure to be able to survive on their own without him to guide them, the victories that he has won on their behalf, the enemies that he has led his armies to defeat up to this point, the other nations that are also involved in similar treaties of sorts, the allies, the other vassals to the high king that are his vassals but are not of this treaty, and that those of this treaty are not to attack or oppress. And this week, the focus of the text shifts to other things. No longer is the text focused on the enemies of the kingdom but now on the necessities of the kings. And this begins at the end of chapter 3, as the text shifts to the need for this high king to take up the place of leadership over the people. And why do the people need a suzerain king? Because their current leadership has failed them. And so while there is mercy and compassion that is shown to the current leader by allowing him to see the land and to have a limited experience of the promise, there is another leader that is being appointed to take his place as the governor over this people in the name of the high king. The high king is appointing his direct vassal over the people of Israel. And so as we open verse 23, this is what we're reading. Moses' plea to be allowed to at least enter into the land grant that's being given to the people of Israel. And this is nothing new in the course of Deuteronomy. We've read of this before in chapter 1 and we'll read it twice in this Parsha, and we're going to read of it at least once more before the end of the book. And nothing has really changed. In this first instance, Moses takes the same stance. It was because of the people Moses was forbidden from entering the land of Canaan. Moses blames the people for his failure. It was their failure that put him in the position to fail. And if they had just taken the land in the first place when they should have, then they would not have been out there in the wilderness years later for Moses to screw up. And from verse 26, it looks as if Moses continues to make his case before Hashem, and Moses continues to place the blame at the feet of the people. Hashem was enraged at me for your sake. You did this to me. It's your fault. But he would not listen to me. I made my case over and over again, and he said to me, enough, don't speak to me about this again. Hashem became fed up with me for continuing to persist in my own innocence. And in this we discover, in what is not stated, and through a comparison with the true king of Israel, just how deep the failure of Moses went. Now please hear me out. Moses was the best of us. 
He was a better human than you or I have any hope of being without a Messiah. And yet he still failed. And in this failure, he looked to his circumstances and shifted the blame to them rather than accepting that blame on himself. This is the root of human nature. We have a hard time accepting that when we fail, it's not our circumstances that cause us to fail. It's us. And that failure is something that we can learn from. Not to put Moses down or denigrate or even slander him, but to help us to learn from his mistakes. To accept that when we fail and recognize that it is squarely our own fault that we have failed, no matter what the circumstances leading up to that failure were, and to help us to appreciate our own king who has taken the place of Moses. Moses knows Hashem. He knows that Hashem is just. It is God's justice that Moses has called upon on several occasions, and it is his justice that's been the underlying factor in so many of the stories that we've read of previously in the Torah. But despite this, Moses persists. It's not my fault. It was this people that you gave me that caused me to sin. Echoes of Adam ringing in our ears. Please don't hold it against me. Moses is in essence saying, yes, I screwed up. And yes, everyone else who screwed up has paid for it. But please, while they've paid for their guilt, don't make me pay for mine. Please allow me over all others to receive the reward and avoid the judgment that is due to me. Now contrast this with our Savior, our Messiah, and our King, the one who was innocent, the one who did no wrong, the one who always passed glory on to the High King. And what was Yeshua's stance toward his role as King? Despite my innocence, please hold me responsible for the sins of all of those who are guilty. Let your punishment and judgment fall on me even though I don't deserve it. And through my sacrifice, allow the reward to pass on to all of them, all of those who are guilty. Do you see the vast difference here? The one leader seeking to place his own guilt at the feet of the people that he led, despite the fact of his own failure. And the other leader seeking to take the guilt of the people that he leads, despite the fact of his own innocence. Yeshua understands the responsibility of leadership, the true role of a king. When those who are under you fail, the blame falls squarely on the leader's shoulder. There was a time when Moses requested this honor, a time when it seems as if he understood this role and responsibility. Exodus 32, 31-32, So Moses returned to Hashem and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. There was a time when Moses was willing to pay for the sins of the people. But that was 40 years ago, and Moses perhaps did not understand the depravity and the ungratefulness that he was going to have to face from these people before the wilderness journey was complete. Yes, Moses was an imperfect leader. He was an imperfect king. And that is the first thing that a kingdom requires. A kingdom requires a king. And for a kingdom that is to be based on righteousness, that kingdom requires a righteous king. Now, the kingdom of God could settle for a human king, a king like the nations, 
In fact, that was the experiment that was run for the people with Saul, a king like the nations. 1 Samuel 8, 4-7 And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to rule over us like all the nations. But the word was evil in the eyes of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to rule over us. So Samuel prayed to Hashem, and Hashem said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from reigning over them. And so a king is searched for, and is finally a single man is chosen. 1 Samuel 10, 21-24 And Samuel brought near all the tribes of Israel, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken. Then he brought near the tribe of Benjamin by their clans, and the clan of Matri was taken, and Shaul the son of Kish was taken, and when they sought him, he could not be found. And they asked again for Hashem, Has the man come here yet? And Hashem answered, See, he has hidden by the baggage. And they ran, and they brought him from there, and he stood in the midst of the people, and he was taller than any of the people, from his shoulder and upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who Hashem has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, Let the king live, or long live the king. A man as tall and powerful and handsome, a man full of himself and his own ability to accomplish, a coward who is hiding among the baggage, like the nations. But the kingdom of God cannot be run by men of this type. The kingdom of God must be run by men of humility and faith, one who will allow God to work out his will in his own timing. A man like Moses or David or Hezekiah. But even these men failed. These were just that. Men. In the end, the kingdom of God cannot be ruled by a man. The kingdom of God needs to be ruled by one like the Son of Man. One who is like us in every way, but one who is more than a simple human. A man who is not subject to the nature of sin, even though he is still tempted by it. A king who understands responsibility and who is willing to pay for the failures of his people, and is fully capable of doing so. And so we look to our King Yeshua to fill this role of the kingdom of God. Next, as we open chapter 4, we read of the second requirement of a kingdom. No nation is complete without a law. And that is where the book of Deuteronomy is headed next in chapter 5, in which we will dig into much more next week. But here in the prologue, the Torah that is about to be given is praised as being perfect. These laws which Moses is teaching, if you do them, you shall live, says verse 1. And this law is complete. Do not add to or take away from the law. It is whole, and it does not need you or anyone else to make it better. It's perfect as it is. Then the text takes a short detour. Do you remember what happened at Baal Peor? Well, it happened because they didn't hold to this law. They did not keep to the standard that has already been set. But you, you who are here today, you are clinging to Hashem. Don't stop. Continue to cling to Hashem, and that means clinging to His law. And this law, when lived properly, is wisdom and understanding. It will set you apart from all the peoples of the world. Obeying this law that is about to be given will cause the nations of the world to wonder at the wisdom and understanding of the people who have this law. They will stand in wonder and awe because our God is so close to us 
as to answer us when we call on him. And this law is not something that was made up by a mere mortal. This law is not the product of a man. This law was given by the voice of God. The ten Devarim, the ten words, the ten commandments that are the beginning of this Torah were spoken by the voice of God. Everyone heard his voice speaking these words. And he wrote these words on tablets of stone with his own hand. And then he commanded Moses to teach the rest of the law. And if we think back on that event, it was not quite so simple. The people couldn't handle it. They could not hear the voice of God speaking from the heavens. Their fear caused them to beg for an intercessor. They begged for a man to be the one to teach them the rest of this law. And so Moses was appointed to impart the law at the request of the people just like Saul was appointed at the request of the people. And so, because of all these reasons, we should be diligent to obey, and that begins with obedience to the first command, or is it the first two? Regardless, even though you heard the voice of God, you did not perceive a form of any kind, and this was purposeful. If you had seen a form, you would forever point to that form and say that this is the form of God. You would make representations of this form and bow to the form and you would lose sight of the God because of the form. So when others tempt you to bow to a form, when you look at some physical representation, do not treat it as if it were God and not even a physical representation of a creature, but you might be tempted to look into the heavens and worship the things that exist there. You might be tempted to look at the created things of the world and to worship them rather than the Creator. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. These things have been given as a gift to all peoples. They are not to be worshipped as if they were a gift or a determiner of destinies. Don't seek to replace your living God and King with a cool statue or a cool element of the creation. You were brought out of Egypt to be God's people. Don't seek to act like Egypt by engaging in these practices. And that brings us to verse 21. Once again, Moses returns to his own judgment, and once again it's the words of the people that kept Moses from entering the land. Now, this should clue us in that something is going on in the text. And without this repeat of Moses' own disappointment, we would likely miss this shift of theme. But if we pay close attention, we discover that the focus of the text changes for the next ten verses. And this shift takes us to the third thing that's required for a kingdom a land. And what is the focus of Moses' complaint in verse 21 and 22? Woe is me! I'm going to die in the wilderness. I don't get to pass over the Jordan to walk in this land that is being given to you as an inheritance. But you, you are going to pass over the Jordan and take up residence in the land that was promised to Abraham. And when you do, don't forget the covenant that is being made here because Hashem is a jealous God. He does not stand for any kind of competition when it comes to his rule and authority. Now, we often look at this language of jealousy, and we describe this emotion and motivation of spouses. And this is not inaccurate in some cases, but in this application, it is. The jealousy that's described here has nothing to do with marital intimacy. It has to do with authority. Hashem is your king and your authority, and he will not stand for his people to accept or appoint other authorities in their lives. 
He is the one and only authority that is to be accepted by the people of God. He is the one and only king, and just as with every human king, there is no sharing of the kingly honor. History is rife with rebellions by those who wished to replace their earthly rulers. And in every case, unless there are some that I am unaware of, the ruler defended their position and authority. And yet there are many in this world who look upon God's jealousy as if it were beneath him, as if he should just be okay for those who are under him to choose to serve other kings or masters or lords or gods or images. There has always been a jealousy for the position of leader, king, president, emperor, or any other among those who achieve this level of authority. And this jealousy is something that Hashem feels for his own position. And worshiping another god is equivalent to replacing your king, and it excites his jealousy for his own authority. In verse 25, when you are in the land of my kingdom, many generations from now, and you begin to share in my honor, authority, and power with images of wood and stone, says Hashem, then a series of events will be enacted. Now, the events described here are a summary of the blessings and curses that are expounded on later in chapters 27 and 28. And here in verse 26, we get the first glimpse of the witnesses that oversee the covenant, an item that is part of every suzerain vassal treaty, but one that is only mentioned as a side comment here. The heavens and the earth will be called as witnesses in that day. Two witnesses of the covenant. Two witnesses of all human history. The two witnesses that were established at the beginning, and the two witnesses that will one day pass away and be replaced. Until that time, the covenant stands. The charge here of appointing or accepting another king is one that takes on the language of a court case in the text. A charge will be leveled against you that you have accepted another god or another king, another ruler and authority. And in that day, Hashem will search out the truth of the matter by questioning the witnesses that have been appointed, the heaven and the Eretz. And you will completely perish from the Eretz that you have been given, because you will be guilty of the charge. The word Eretz is the word that's translated as both earth and land. You see, this treaty isn't just a suzerain vassal treaty that is establishing a hierarchy of authority. This treaty is also a land-grant treaty. You, Israel, are being granted this land to occupy, to live in, and to care for. But the land is not yours. It belongs to the king. If you fail to live up to the expectations placed on you by the land-grant treaty, if you begin to rebel against your king by appointing another king, even if that king is yourself, your land-grant will be revoked and you will be removed from the land. And when this happens, you will no longer have your land grant. You will be scattered and you will be nearly destroyed. You will be given over to your replacement authorities of wood and stone. But you will find them to be worthless gods, empty and devoid of life with no ability to help. And so from there, you will search for Hashem once again. You will seek to discover the true king. You will seek to obey once again and you will return to Hashem you will come back. And when you do, you will be accepted back into the covenant and the grant that has been given to you. Why? Because Hashem is not only jealous and stern and just, but he is also compassionate and merciful. 
He remembers the covenants that he makes even when you don't. He will stay true to these covenants even when you won't. That is just the kind of king that he is. And in verse 32, the text of the prologue takes one more shift in focus. Remember, there are four things that are needed for a kingdom to exist. There is a king, the king who is great enough to supplant your human leaders in the earth. Even a man as great as Moses can be supplanted by this king. There is a law, and this law that you are about to receive is one that is unparalleled in human experience. There is a land, a land that's been promised for centuries, but this land is just a grant. It's not yours. It's yours to keep, to guard, and occupy, but the land truly belongs to the king. And the final thing that is needed for a kingdom is a people. And that's where these final verses of this prologue focus. Has any other people heard the voice of God? Has there ever been another people that was taken out from the midst of a nation and forged into another nation as Hashem did to you? Your king has shown you his great power and might. He has fought for you, and you have seen his glory. He loved your fathers, and because of them he has chosen you, their seed. And he has given you the power and authority to now cleanse the land that you are getting ready to inherit. And when you as a people obey his voice and do his will, you will be allowed to live in the land for a long time. Because the land is yours forever, if you choose to be part of the kingdom. A kingdom that is made up of people. A kingdom that has been granted a land. A kingdom that is governed by laws. A kingdom with a king, a high king, that oversees all. This is the introduction to the world of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that has been invading the earth from the moment of the first sin. One that's been opposed at every turn. The kingdom has enemies, both foreign and domestic. The kingdom has many who honor their king in their speech, but their actions are far from him. But this profile of the kingdom is just the beginning. It's only a snapshot of the reality of our day and age. This is not the kingdom of God that was preached by Yeshua. Now, the people who lived at the time of Yeshua, they expected that this is what the kingdom of God would look like, a physical earthly kingdom with a physical earthly king, the Messiah, son of David, on the throne of David, ruling over Israel, a kingdom that would look just like the kingdom that was ruled over by David, a unified Israel, a powerhouse nation in the world that all of the nations would envy and flock to safe from the nations that surround, the enemies in the land destroyed and overcome, a kingdom forged around the ethnic boundaries of the Jews and the geographical boundaries of Canaan, a kingdom that is governed by a legalistic adherence to the Torah as given to Moses and expanded on by the Pharisees. And what did Yeshua do instead? He acted as a servant. A servant of all mankind, he acted in humility and was ultimately humiliated by the governments of the world. And in his humiliation, he was elevated and coronated. Elevated over a kingdom that is not of this world. He didn't forge boundaries based on rivers and mountains and seas. Instead, he declared that the kingdom that he was forging was not a kingdom of this world. It would not be constrained to any physical boundary that can be found on the earth but rather it was a kingdom that would invade every other nation that exists. It is a nation that is bound only by the hearts of the people who joined themselves to him as king.
He didn't call to him a people based on ethnicity. Instead, he called to him a people who were not a people and forged them together as one. A group of people not based on blood or heritage, but rather a nation forged out of faith. He didn't establish the law of Moses as written statutes and guidelines that were to be kept exactingly out of obligation. Rather, he established a law that is based solely on love. Love for God and love for your fellow man. A law with the same terms as the law of Moses. One that is established through his reign, but also one that can only be kept through a condition of the heart. One that is not based on circumcision of the flesh and an outward action. One that is based on circumcision of the heart and an inward desire to demonstrate the love of God. And we're going to see that reflected in the pages of Deuteronomy before the end. This is the model that we have from our Messiah. And this is the kingdom that's being founded on this earth. You see, this kingdom, it already exists. It exists in the heavens, Hashem ruling from on high over the heavenly realm. This kingdom truly is among us already, and it has been since the seeds were first planted. And this message of the kingdom that Yeshua shared is truly like the parable of the sower, seeds planted in the hearts of men, and those seeds will either find root or not. So the question arises, who is your king? Who is your authority? Have you set yourself up as king of your life? Have you allowed another to take that place? Is there some inanimate object that controls your every thought and action? Is there some body of men that you obey before you obey God? Are you serving two masters? You see, Americans have, through a whole series of mental gymnastics, established that having a ministry is nearly always secondary. Serve something else first. Serve your stomach. Serve your family. Serve your bottom line. Serve your nation. None of these are bad in and of themselves, but each of them is intended by God to be secondary to serving our King. The life of the believer is to be one of ministry. It is to be a life of service to God first and foremost. Every believer in the Messiah of Israel is to be engaged in service to the King of Kings, because his kingdom is here. It is now. And the King rules on the throne over us, the people who have pledged our allegiance to him. And we are tasked with bringing that kingdom to earth. We are tasked with obedience. So let's each consider our lives and motivations. Who are we serving? If your priority list doesn't start with service to Hashem, then it might be time to reassess. Because there is only one king and he has no equal. And he will not countenance any rivalry in the lives of those who are his. He is the king of life. He rules over a kingdom of life. He has given a law that is life, all to create a people of life. So Derash Chai, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derash Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. 
We'll see you again next time as we dare Shai, as we seek life. Shalom.